The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. Good morning, church. How are we? It is great to see you. Um, I've been around, but I haven't preached for three weeks, and I have a lot to say, so (laughs) couldn't take a minute. But um, anyway, if you're new here, uh, I'm really, really thankful that you're with us. Uh, If there's any way we can serve you or bless you, we we would love to do that. Um, Today, if you are new, whether this is your first time or you've been coming around for a while, hey, there we go. Whether you're new or been coming around for a while, um, and now it's too loud, of course, Uh, We have a a thing uh, we're calling Open House, uh, which is just sort of an introduction to the church. It's very, very short. It's kind of a drop-in deal. We got lemonade and cookies. So uh, it's going to be just out these doors and to the right. If you go out that door, it's to the left, that classroom back there. But um, yeah, it'll take you 10, 15 minutes, maybe. Um, We'd love to have you come visit with us just for a little while. I'll be there. Some of our other leadership will be there as well. So um, come to Open House this morning if you can. Um, I also have an update for you on the building out of the building, um, and I'll give you that at the end of the gathering. How about that? Okay? So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Titus chapter 2. Um, if you're using one of our Bibles in the pews there, uh, it's going to be page 939. And um, if you don't, don't want to do that, it's going to be on the screen as well, but it's good for you to have the Word of God in front of you. Uh, Titus chapter 2. We're in a series here, obviously, called Doctrine and Devotion through the book of Titus. And and I want to give you a little bit of the why, since I didn't get to... Now, let me just say this first. Can we give Mark, Pastor Mark and Pastor Jimmy, a round of applause for the last few weeks leading us and teaching us? Super thankful for these men uh, who are faithful to the word. Um, We called it Doctrine and Devotion because of this. Um, Some of you might be familiar with A.W. Tozer. Uh, He was a a preacher in the 40s and 50s uh, and beyond, prolific writer. And he wrote a book called Knowledge of the Holy. Highly recommended. Everyone should read Knowledge of the Holy. The very first line in Knowledge of the Holy is this. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'm going to say that one more time. The most important. Important thing about us, that this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because what we believe, our doctrine, shapes our affections, our devotion, and influences the way we live. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us when we, because it shapes everything else about the rest of our lives. Now, some people think the doctrine is heady and dry and kind of the stuff for theologians to discuss, but it doesn't really matter for everyday Christians like you and me. I'm going to tell you, it matters. Okay? It matters greatly. You all just saw Jimmy up here, Pastor Jimmy, uh, giving our prayer and praying over me, over, over you. Um, if my doctrine of Jimmy, what I believed about Jimmy was that he was about 6'6", six, six, and had this booming deep voice, and he was just ripped, right? Um, And he was African-American. And he was single. And he had no children. Well, that would be completely wacko, right? Because that's not who Jimmy is. 
You just saw him. He's married. He's got a daughter. That's not who he is. But if I was like, well, that's how I like to think of him. You would be like, you are crazy, right? And so here's my point in that. We all have doctrine. We all have doctrine about God, about us, about who humanity is apart from God, who we are in God. It's just that some of us don't have sound doctrine. And, and we are fools to think that our beliefs about God and his word and the, in humanity in this world have no bearing on how we relate to him or to other people. That's foolish. And that's the issue that's happening on the island of Crete, okay? So Mark told you uh, week one that this book of Titus is written to Titus, who's on the island of Crete. This is uh, an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's, It's a little larger than the size of Delaware, if that gives you any kind of geographical markers. And in the first century, it was sort of the Australia of the Roman world. And what I mean by that is, you know how Australia was started, right? Or how the white people got to Australia? They were all prisoners from England, right? Who were sent there in exile. Well, that's what Crete was. If you were in trouble, if you were on the run, if you were uh, convicted of a crime and weren't going to be put to death, they would exile you to Crete. So as you can imagine, the best of the best were in Crete, Okay. There were about 20 to 30 towns and uh, full of exiles, and, and there was also a, a Jewish population there for some reason. They were exiled as well. Um, but there were people there. The gospel had taken root, right? The gospel had taken root, um, but, but bad doctrine was confusing these new Christians and hindering their walk with the Lord because it seems like some people were teaching that your convictions and your conduct had nothing to do with each other. But Paul's reminder to us is that our our convictions do shape our conduct as followers of Jesus. And I don't assume everyone in this room is a follower of Jesus, but for those of us who are, our convictions about God, about Christ, about humanity absolutely shape our lives in this world. Particularly, Paul's going to show us this morning one specific doctrine, and that's the doctrine of grace. So we're going to look at that here. Now, I'd like to read the entire chapter. It's only 15 verses, so don't worry. Uh, Just to give us context, especially if you weren't here last week, that kind of thing, and I'll be referencing it so that'll sort of catch us all up to speed. So let's read Titus 2, starting in verse 1. I'll read all 15 verses, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll jump in here. Titus 2, starting in verse 1, says this, but as for you, speaking to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. A theme here, huh? Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works so that in your teaching, uh, in, in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We're going to focus on these verses this morning. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, again, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to be back with my church family. Thank you for rest. Thank you for godly men who can lead in my stead. I thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to open your word And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me um, and that you would open the ears and hearts of the people in this room and who are watching or who will listen later. I pray that you would help us to see wonderful things in your word, that we might see the beauty and glory of Jesus, to see the beauty and glory of your grace, and to cling to you more fervently than we ever have before. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do in this room, through your word, for our good and for your glory. I pray all this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to keep going. I'm getting a little ringing, Micah, but I know you're working on it. Um, Okay, first thing I want to point out to you here, we're going to go back through the text a little bit, um, is that God's grace saves us. That's point one, if you're a, a note taker here. That grace saves us. Look at verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Another way to translate that, actually, because it might be confusing. Grace saves all people? Well, really, the better way to translate it is the grace of God, which is of salvation, has appeared to all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. If you remember, Paul most likely came to the island of Crete on an undocumented fourth missionary journey. So we don't know much about what happened there, but we know that he went there and he, he proclaimed the gospel there. So this is probably uh, mid-60s AD, early to mid-60s AD. And he left Titus behind. Titus's job was to bring order and stability to these fledgling churches and to establish leadership, to establish elders in those congregations. He says that to him in verse 5 of chapter 1. I left you here that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, establishing elders in a new church is hard enough, but his role is to do this among the Cretans, which if you remember from chapter one, Cretans, one of their own prophets said of Cretans, they are all liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And some of these liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons had come to Christ, but they were still liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And so this is the pool of leadership that Titus has to work with. Not unlike me. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> <Just kidding. laughs> so Paul says last week, hey, teach everybody. Teach older men, teach older women. Teach younger men, teach uh, younger women. Teach even those who are enslaved to the empire. Teach them all what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, he says in chapter one, teach them truth that accords with godliness. Because doctrine and devotion are connected. Because 
Convictions and conduct are interlinked, inextricably woven together. You'll even see in verse 15, he says, declare these things. Right? Preach to them, speak to them, um, exhort. That means to come alongside or to encourage. It's actually the same root word where, uh, when we talk about the Holy Spirit as our helper. That the paraclete, that's the same word here. Come alongside. Encourage. He says rebuke. That means correct. With all authority. You have been entrusted, Titus, with authority from Jesus himself to now install elders in these churches and to teach them, to correct them, to encourage them towards right convictions, which will lead them eventually to right conduct because doctrine informs devotion, which shapes character, which shapes conduct. In fact, as, we, as I kind of pointed out here, one of the main themes that you see in this, in this book is self-control, which means one of, the, one of the key factors of being a Christian, what's going to make you stand out in the cities in, on the island of Crete that you belong to Jesus and not to the world is that you have self-control, which is pretty low of a bar if you ask me. Okay, so here's my question. Why? Should the people of Crete, why should we care about shaping our lives in this particular way? Because Paul says in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared in the person and work of Jesus. The word appeared here is where we get the word epiphany. Okay, so if you come from like a Catholic or other religious traditional background, you might know Epiphany Sunday, right? But when we use the word epiphany in our culture, we, what do we mean? If I say, I had an epiphany. Oh, something dawned on me. I had an aha moment, right? The grace of God has dawned upon us. That's what he's saying. It's, it's bursting forth like the morning light over a ridge. Okay? This is what has happened. The grace of God has come to us. Now, I know a lot of us are Christians in here. Some of us have walked with Jesus for a very long time. And so you may not, we might just roll right past this word grace. But I want to slow down for a second. What does it mean? What does grace mean? If we went downtown right now and asked 15 people what grace means, we're going to get 16 different answers. By God's grace, we won't have that same problem in this room. But here, here's the thing. Most theologians would call grace unmerited favor. Now think about that for a minute. Favor, blessing, benevolence of God to us without merit. We didn't earn it. There's nothing we can do to... to to garner it from God, he simply gives it. Another theologian who I highly respect put it this way, and I've said this to you before, that grace is a gift that we don't deserve. Not just that we're undeserving, we are ill-deserving. It's a gift freely given, costs us nothing, but it, but it comes at great expense to the giver of the gift. But it's their joy to do it. A gift free to us, but at great expense to the giver, but it's their joy to give it. That's grace. What is this gift of grace? What does he say? Salvation. Salvation. For you and I in this room who have surrendered our lives to the lordship of Jesus, we have received the gift of salvation. 
a gift we don't deserve, given at great expense to Jesus, but it was his joy to give it. And here's, here's, what, here's what that means. And this is, gosh, I mean, you guys know this, but I hope you kind of feel it all over again. The grace of God has appeared to us. Here's what that means. In the middle of our failing, in the middle of our wrongheadedness, in the middle of our confusion and stubbornness and, and rebellion, and in the middle of our crazy, the grace of God appeared. It dawned upon us. It, it was an aha moment. Now, for some of you, that's happened like a floodlight, right? You were walking in darkness, boom, lights came on, much like this, and you're like, ooh, okay. And then others of you, it's been more like a dimmer switch, right? Over the course of your lives, things have gotten brighter and more clear, and all of a sudden, you turn around one day and you go, you know what, I think I love Jesus. But however it's happened, that's the grace of God appearing to you, dawning upon you. That Jesus came to us. That Jesus opened our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to see who he was. That Jesus opened our hearts. That he showed us our great need. That we had sin and rebellion that could not be dealt with any other way. That he opened our our, understanding to the reality of his perfect sinless life in our place his sacrificial death on the cross as our substitute for all of our sin and rebellion and stupidity and folly his glorious resurrection from the dead sealing the guarantee that that his payment was sufficient his finished work in his life death and resurrection he opened our hearts to receive with the empty hands of faith, this great and glorious gift of salvation. Why would he do that? Because he loves us, even though he knows everything about us. If somebody just bumped into you on the street one day and said, I know everything about you, you would run. Or you'd at least die of shame, right? Like if you walked around one day and without knowing it, every thought you ever had was recorded that day and then somehow uploaded to YouTube the next day for all the world to see, you would find a cave and hide in it until the Lord took you home. And I would too. But Jesus says, I know you all the way to the bottom. I know every secret. I know every abuse. I I know everything that's been done to you, and I know everything that you have done and thought, and I loved you enough to to go to the cross for you, to give my life as a ransom for you. If that doesn't stir something up in you, you might need to get your pulse checked. And you imagine the first people to hear this were those Cretan exiles, They knew what they had done wrong because it got them exiled to the island of Crete. Can you imagine sitting there in that room? Now, Titus was the first to read it, and then he would have read it to the congregations in Crete. And and to be a Cretan, a liar, an evil beast, a lazy glutton, and to hear these words of grace spoken to you? Here's why this is such good news. Because every single one of us in this room, in fact, every single human being in Asheville, in fact, every single human being on the face of this planet is a Cretan at a heart level. But the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation. Now, some people think that grace is purely a New Testament concept, you know, that the God of the Old Testament is full of wrath and judgment and law, and somehow the, it's a different God in the New Testament. He's one of mercy and grace and love and puppies and fairy tales and stuff like that. There's one God who exists in both Testaments, and he changeth not. In fact, um, in the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, God reveals his personal nature, his character, his, who he really is to Moses. Exodus 34, what's he say? The Lord, the Lord, that's his personal covenant name, Yahweh. Merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's who he is, okay? But it's, but the grace of God was manifest uniquely in the person and work of Jesus. We see this very clearly in John chapter one. I'll just read you a couple of verses. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses and the truth Grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side and has made him known. And then he goes on to say, and whoever would believe in him, he's given the right to be called the children of God by grace. So the grace of God saves us. That's the first thing I wanted you to see here. The second thing I want you to see is that grace trains us. Grace trains us. Let's look at these verses again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That same grace, that same grace that saves us now teaches us, instructs us, trains us to live distinctly Christian lives. Firstly, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, um, to forsake anything in our lives that is ungodly or displeasing to the Lord. And if you want any examples, I mean, if we go back through Titus, we see they lack self-control. They lack love. Some of them are gossips and backbiters. They're drunkards, right? They're given to excess, um, they, they're insubordinate, okay? Like that's a whole, but it can also be, so it can be that kind of stuff. It can also be judgmental self-righteousism, self-righteousness, religion without any love for God, being critical, lacking grace, The grace of God has appeared teaching us to forsake anything that is ungodly or displeasing to the Lord. How can we, I mean, if this, if what I said about the grace of God saving us is true, and it's true, how can we who have received such a blessed gift of grace from God himself, how can we so easily give ourselves over to things that he hates? Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Baptist preacher in the 1800s. Um, most Christians 
are trying to be a little in the world and a little in God. But they're enough into the world to be miserable in God. And they're enough into God to be miserable in the world. Does that describe you this morning? See, grace instructs, grace disciplines, grace coaches us to put to death the things of the flesh. Paul so um, brilliantly describes this in Colossians chapter three, that, that if you have been raised with Christ then focus your heart and mind on the things above where Christ is and put to death the things of the flesh, put off the old man so that you can then put on the new man, which we'll get to in a minute. And here's how it happens. And, and I don't know that any of us are there yet, so just rest easy, okay? When we are captivated by the beauty and the glory of the grace of God to us, the beauty and glory of the grace of God outstrips, overshadows, outweighs all those lesser affections that we give ourselves to. And it, and it usually starts with behaviors that we put to the side. And then as we grow in Christ, we recognize it's not just behaviors, it's actually attitudes and motives of the heart that are displeasing to him. That's why Paul, who was a murderer of Christians and then became one, could say in Romans 7, I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do, right? He's not just talking about behaviors like he had stopped killing Christians. Praise God for that. But he realized, I'm still a judgmental jerk on the inside. Who will save me from this body of death? Praise be to Christ. So we learn by grace to, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to renounce, to run from, not just to like avoid, but to actually run the opposite direction of these worldly passions and things of the flesh. And then secondly, we learn by grace to walk in glad submission to Jesus so that our lives actually bear the fruit of godliness. Galatians chapter five, the fruit of godliness is the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control which is the big theme of Titus. In other words, we learn by grace to fear the Lord. Now, fear of the Lord is a big theme all throughout the Bible, but particularly in the Old Testament. And here's what it doesn't mean. Fear of the Lord doesn't mean that you are afraid of God. If you are not a Christian, you had better be afraid of God. If you have given your life to Jesus, there's no need to be afraid of God. There's not a cringing dread before God, not in Christ. Fear of the Lord is openness. It's humility. It's a willingness to be instructed by him. Uh, we sing it in, in Amazing Grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. To fear what? Fear the Lord and grace my fears relieved. What does that mean? Well, we all walk by fear. It's just that most of us fear the world more than we fear the Lord. We, we fear not being accepted. We fear not having enough. We fear not being secure. We fear, right? We, all kinds of fears we walk in and those fears dominate our lives and the fear of the Lord does not. And here's what happens. When we walk in fear of whatever, 
when, when fear of whatever it is, is at the center of our lives, we make foolish choices in order to maintain control, in order to get our way, in order for that thing not to slip away from our grip. But when fear of the Lord is at the center of our lives, the choices we make are wise and sober and sensible and pleasing to him. Grace trains us to do that. Um, I was thinking about training. I know that some of you in the room are runners. Um, most of us are not. I'm just going to venture to say. But let's say that you had the desire to run a marathon next year. You would need training, yeah? And we could lean on the runners in the room to ask us, okay, we're going to run 26.2 miles in a marathon. So how do we get there? Well, you need training. You need someone to tell you what to eat and what not to eat, right? When to work out and when not to, uh, what your rest days are going to be, when you're going to do endurance and when you're going to do sprint training and what shoes to wear and what clothing you need to wear so that you know, we don't chafe everywhere. You know, like they, there's all kinds of training and instruction you're going to need and it's going to be difficult. It's going to be a challenge for you, but you've got a coach by your side saying, you can do this. Grace is our coach, cheering us on, correcting, reproving, instructing, so that we might become people who put to death the things of the world and live unto godliness. Fear of the Lord is a posture of heart that says, what does God say? What does God want? What would honor him? What would glorify him? Now, is it easy? No. Are we any good at it? But God is never far away. And so let's stay open to him, trusting that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And that's actually exactly where Paul goes next in the flow of the text. So look with me at verses 13 and 14. And I want you to see that grace purifies us. Grace purifies us. You guys hanging with me so far? God, this text is so good. Okay. Training us to renounce ungodliness, to live upright godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all who would put their trust in the finished work of Jesus and the grace of God will appear again. The glory of the grace of God will appear again. And that is our blessed hope. Now listen, um, in English, the word hope kind of just means a wishful thought. But biblically, and I've said this to you many times and I'll continue to say it, biblical hope, one author said, is a life-shaping certainty about the future. Now that's different life-shaping certainty about the future. There is a day coming, friends, when Jesus will return. 
Now, many of us will go to him first, but Jesus is returning. That day, that day of the Lord is mentioned at least 318 times in the New Testament. One out of every 25 verses in the New Testament is about the return of Jesus Christ. And two glorious things will happen on that day, at least. One, Jesus will be fully known. Every eye will see him. Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That doesn't mean every person will worship him and love him, but all will acknowledge who he is. Christ will be known. Secondly, the kingdom of God will be fully realized. Do you know what that means? It means the dwelling place of God will be with man. It means you and I will see him face to face. And every longing of our heart will be fully and completely satisfied in the presence of God. That means truth, ultimate truth will come. That means justice will come on this earth. That means the end of suffering and pain and death and taxes. This is why um, in Romans 8, Paul says that all of creation is groaning like a mother in, in, in labor that the Lord would come and finish this thing. That's why the book of Revelation ends with Maranatha, which means come, Lord, come quickly and, and consummate your kingdom. And so as you and I eagerly await his glorious appearing, grace is preparing us for a glorious future. That's why Christ came. The text just told us that he gave himself. We've already talked about that, right? His life, his death, his resurrection. He gave himself to redeem us. That means to, to buy us back, to ransom us, to redeem us, to, to set us free from slavery because all of us are born as slaves to sin, slaves to the passions of our flesh. And, and Christ has set us free from that. Romans is so clear about this, that we're no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to Christ. He is our master. So sin, the, the, Jesus broke the power of sin over your life. Do you believe that? He redeemed us, set us free. And then he says that he came to purify us. Now, on the one hand, the moment that you and I, with empty hands of faith, receive the finished work of Jesus, we are declared pure. You are called holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Because God looks at you through the lens of Christ and he sees the perfection of Jesus and that filters onto you and he sees you as perfected. Uh, Hebrews 10, he has by a single sacrifice perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So positionally, right? You are declared pure on the day that you receive with empty hands the finished work of Jesus. But on the other hand, purification is a process and it ain't an easy one. And here's why. Um, earlier in the text, we talked about renouncing worldly passions and the lust of the flesh and, and that kind of thing, right? Ungodliness. And a lot of that has to do with behaviors. But purification has to do with our interior world, with the heart, 
And I don't know if you know this, but if you had a you know, spiritual microscope and could look into the soul, it is like the house of a hoarder in there. You, you've seen that show, Hoarders? Or maybe you know one. <laughs> Floor to ceiling, okay? Just useless junk everywhere. Box upon box upon box upon box. If this is your house, please let us know. We'll help you clean it out. <laughs> Stuff everywhere. Every single room packed to the gills. I mean, just junk, right? Useless stuff that you don't need, but you can't let go of. That's the inside of your soul. But we don't know it because we're all walking around happy-go-lucky like nothing's wrong with us. But we know that on the inside, we're an absolute train wreck on the inside. Like everything in here is disheveled and messed up. And so Jesus comes to us by grace and he patiently, lovingly, graciously, firmly cleans out every square inch, every dark corner. He opens every box, (laughs) even those boxes. And Jesus, by grace, helps us to toss out all of the junk that we want to keep so badly, but he knows is slowly killing us. He transforms. And this this is the work of your whole lifetime, okay? Purification is a lifetime work, but he is preparing you for a glorious future. And so he, he is transforming our desires, our passions, right? He's transforming our fears, transforming our attitudes, our motives, our actions from the inside out. So I hope you've heard nothing today of grace is a behavior modifier. No, 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 grace changes the heart. And when the heart changes, the behavior changes or else it's not real heart change. Why would Jesus do this for us? Look back at the text. Verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, listen to this, for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Um, That word there has the idea of a treasure. We're a people of his own possession. We are his treasure. Do you believe that Jesus treasures you and you and you and you and me? That we are his treasure? That he has our names written on his heart? (laughs) That's why he would do this. The only other place in the New Testament where this phrase appears is in 1 Peter. If you can flip over there really quickly, do so. It will not be on the screen, but I want to read a couple of verses here because what this tells me, so Paul wrote Titus. Guess who wrote Peter? Peter, okay. Um, This was a common understanding among the apostles. So much so that both Paul and Peter use the same language. Now, they're pulling from Old Testament, right? The people of his own possession is an Old Testament idea that they now apply to the Christian church, to you and to me. So 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at what he says in verse 9. But you, church, Christians, 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, his treasure, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called you out of Crete (laughs) and into his kingdom. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then listen to how he follows it up. In light of this, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles <laughs> to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Paul says, Jesus is here to redeem you and to purify you, to make you zealous for good works. By grace, we are saved. By grace, we are being trained to pursue godliness. And by his grace, we are being purified into a people. So this isn't just about you individually. This is about us as the community of faith, right? This letter was read to the churches. We are being purified into a people who imperfectly, but very tangibly, put something of the beauty and the reality of God's grace on display so that other Cretans, whether literal or Cretans of heart, so that other Cretans of heart might actually be able to experience the grace of God so that the grace of God might dawn upon them as well, appear to them as well. One more thing from Spurgeon, and then I got three questions for you. In reference to this passage, uh, Spurgeon said this so beautifully. Behind us is our trust. That's the cross. Before us is our hope. If it's true that behind us burns the everlasting light of the Redeemer's first appearing, and before us blazes the supernatural splendor of his second coming, what manner of people ought we to be? What manner of people? Ought we to be? All right, I got three questions for you. They'll be on the screen here. You can write them down as they come, or you can uh, take a picture of the screen when they're all up. Firstly, how has the grace of God appeared to me? Like, I really want you to get serious about this question. Whether it was a floodlight moment or, uh, you know, a dimmer switch moment. Can you remember, can you, can you go back and, and recognize the grace of God in the personal work of Jesus Christ dawning upon your soul? Do you know that you know that you know that the grace of God has changed you? Doesn't mean you're perfected. Doesn't mean you've put to death all the passions of the flesh. But it means of anything in this world, I am clinging to Jesus and Jesus alone because he has shown me his grace. Has the grace of God appeared to you? If it hasn't, maybe today is the day that The grace of God will be an aha moment for you, and I would love to invite you to receive the grace of God this morning. Second, where do I sense God's grace training me right now? So that might be conviction about certain things that need to be put to death, certain attitudes or behaviors or actions, right? That's grace to you. 
See, it's, it's God's mercy to you to bring conviction of things that are not pleasing to him. His wrath towards you is just to let you continue on with your life in rebellion to him. You realize that, right? So what, where do I sense God's grace training me? He's gentle, he's kind, he's patient, but he's going, hey, let's, let's put this to death. Let's live to godliness here. Where do I sense God's grace training me, convicting, instructing, challenging? And then finally, how might we as Christ's treasured people, not just steadfast, but Christians, right? How might we as Christ's treasured people more vividly display his grace and glory to one another and to our neighbors? The grace of God has appeared to us. And if we've realized that grace, how is it changing us that we might become a people who are purified, his possession, zealous for good works, so that one another are blessed and our neighbors who don't even know Jesus are blessed and get to see and taste the grace of God for themselves. All right, I'm gonna leave uh, these questions up on the screen. I'm gonna pray for you. And we're gonna move into our time of response. Uh, we do that here at Steadfast in a few ways. First will be communion. So um, we're gonna have a moment of silence and then I'll invite you starting on those back rows uh, to come forward. Now, if you're not a Christian or if you don't feel compelled to participate in communion today, that's fine. Uh, this is offered to be received. It's not required, okay? So um, what we do though, if you are a Christian and you desire to receive this uh, means of grace of communion is to come down uh, to one of these four stations. You'll take a piece of the bread. Uh, you will dip into the juice or the wine, which is whichever your conscience allows. And what we're doing in this moment is we are remembering the grace of God that's appeared to us. We're remembering the broken body, the blood of Jesus which was spilled to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. And we do so in repentance of sin, turning away from sin and turning back to Jesus. We do so in faith that who, who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it on the day of Christ. And then we do it in joy because this is a foretaste of the day that we'll be with him, the eternal feast. And so we'll start on the back rows. We'll work our way forward. Um, uh, as you make your way back to your seats, there are black boxes in the back. If you're new around here and want to fill out a connect card and let us know you were here, you can drop it in those boxes or just bring it with you to open house. Um, if you are a regular and want to give, you can do that uh, to fund the, the mission here in the ministry. And then um, as you make your way back to your seats, the band's going to lead us in a few songs as we uh, make our way out this afternoon. Let me pray and we'll have a moment of silence and then I'll invite you forward. Father, thank you so much that the grace of God has appeared to us ill-deserving sinners who have received such a gift. It's not even possible to explain, given all the words and all the books in all the world, how amazing, how beautiful, how scandalous this grace of God is. But we thank you that we have received it. I pray right now that if there's any person in this room who is not sure that they've experienced your grace, who has not received it, Lord, that, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would draw them from death into life, from rebellion into faith, from, um, from darkness into light, um, that they, even in their seats, would say, Lord, I don't, I don't have all the answers, but I, I, I'm convinced that you are the Christ, that you have come to save me, and I wanna follow you. I turn from myself and my sin, and I follow you now. That even in that moment, you promise that they would be saved. Lord, as we respond in communion and in giving and singing, would you be honored and glorified and fill us with joy in your presence. We ask this all in the beautiful name of Jesus and we pray by the power of your spirit. 
Amen. Uh, just be still for a moment. When I get up, that'll be the signal that the tables are open so that you on the back rows can come forward.